This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism, Debates in the Second International, 1900 to 1910, edited by Mike Tabor. At its height, from 1889 to 1914, the Second Socialist International represented the majority of organized workers in the world, with the revolutionary goal of overthrowing capitalism. Its major accomplishments, such as the Eight-Hour Workday and International Women's Day, testify to its lasting influence around the world. In this important collection of debates at Congresses of the Second International, Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism captures the International's vibrancy and gives a snapshot of its strengths, weaknesses, and contradictions. As David McNally puts it, this book is a treasure chest for every socialist seeking to understand the history of their movement. Bringing together documents from 1900 to 1910, Mike Tabor shows us how socialists more than a century ago analyzed and debated key questions of their time. Find Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second of my two-part interview with Amna Akbar, Gabe Wynan, and Thea Rio Francos, mapping out the broad contours of the present American conjuncture in all of its complexity and overdetermination. The last installment was in significant part a close analysis of the past decade plus of very recent history, tracing a cycle of struggle stretching from Occupy through the summer of 2020 uprisings. If you haven't listened yet, I would definitely check out last week's part one, before listening to this. Today, we're getting into as much as we can on an impossibly elusive present. A present that's at the same time constantly emergent while also slipping into the rearview mirror. Before we get this podcast started, I do hope you know that The Dig is overwhelmingly listener-supported by listeners like you who make a monthly or annual contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. I do not know of many podcasts that run mostly on voluntary listener support. It would be way easier to paywall half of all episodes and raise more money that way. But paywalling episodes would mean that people who can't afford to pay couldn't listen. And that's not okay with us. The Dig is first and foremost a political education project. And our goal is for as many people as possible to listen to every episode. What's more, we do have swag, books, tote bags, coffee mugs to send contributors and people who contribute any amount at all, any amount at all, get our newsletter by email. But the best argument for you contributing is that the more people who contribute, the less time I have to spend stressing about fundraising and budgeting, and the more I can focus on just putting out the damn show. If you love The Dig and can afford to contribute and you haven't contributed yet, please do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, I hope to see you all at the Socialism 2023 conference in Chicago over Labor Day weekend. We're going to have a live dig on organizing with Rachel Gilmore, Alex Hahn, and Astra Taylor. And I also just found out that I'm going to be on a panel about housing organizing and socialist strategy, which I'm really looking forward to. 
Okay, here's Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Thea Rio Francos. Amna Akbar is a professor of law at The Ohio State University. She writes about social movements on the left, their demands and campaigns, and how they relate to questions and institutions of law. Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, was published in 2021 and discussed with me right here on The Dig. Theo Riofrancos is a professor of political science at Providence College who researches resource extraction, the energy transition, supply chains, and social movements. She's the author of Resource Radicals, the co-author of A Planet to Win, and currently writing Extraction, the Frontiers of Green Capitalism. Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Theorio Francos. Welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having us back. Thanks, Ted. Well, I did promise listeners that that was part one of a two-part interview, so I really didn't have any choice, but but you're welcome. <laughs> um, I, I dedicated a recent episode to Bidenomics, namely this new industrial policy that, that aims to drive the energy transition revive American manufacturing and or American labor. There's a lot of debate and questions there. And then lastly, to check China's economic and geopolitical power. Prior to the pandemic, the left's struggle around climate issues was around the Green New Deal framework, something, Thea, that you were very involved in. And then it seemed like in recent years since Biden's election that many of the people involved in the Green New Deal political and policy work were engaged with Build Back Better, which ultimately became the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. And the idea, I think, was to make Build Back Better look as much like a Green New Deal as possible. And then, ultimately, I'd argue that the result was, with the IRA, was this contradictory set of policies that represents the balance of political forces, a balance that reflects an influential but very far from dominant left. My question is, do you agree with that assessment of, of the balance of forces that made Bidenomics? And then where does that leave the balance of forces as Bidenomics in general and the IRA in particular are being implemented? How is the implementation of laws like the IRA remaking the train of struggle, particularly the sort of struggles we were discussing in part one of our interview, struggles that aim to alter the balance of forces so that it tilts further left and toward the working class? Because on the one hand, the IRA and other legislation are clearly very consequential as policy. But on a political level, I'm not sure most Americans are too aware of what the IRA is. And I'm also skeptical it'll have this catalytic effect on reviving the American labor movement. What do you all think? So, you know, I think that it's worth kind of zooming out and back a little bit before answering the more conjunctural part of your question why has Bidenomics emerged? There's this industrial policy turn, especially around green technologies and semiconductors, and so using state policies to stimulate these new sectors. There's a clear, like, hawkish, especially vis-a-vis -vis China, but not exclusively, and kind of competitive aspect of, of Bidenomics. And then there's this somewhat amorphous recentering of the working and middle class and, and labor unions, which we'll get into, you know, throughout and, and, and a bit later. But those are some key aspects of, of Bidenomics. And the question is, after decades of what we might call neoliberal hegemony, why are we getting this policy pivot from the like clear center of the political establishment? One way to cut it is to think of this as a liberal kind of political response to the combination of 
of Trump and the China shock, both of them were kind of shocking to the liberal establishment, right? So one is Trump wasn't expected to win and the kind of rhetoric and and bases on which he won definitely called into question, for example, commitments to free trade. Um, And then there's China's economic ascent, which can be normatively evaluated in a bunch of different ways, but, you know, it clearly has occurred. So I think Bidenomics is a response to that. A second, you know, way to kind of understand why Bidenomics is happening is that we are kind of living in in an era of of polycrisis, and that requires a more muscular state. So we have, you know, climate crisis, uh, pandemic, geopolitical conflagrations, and all of that brings into being like a more muscular state apparatus. I think there's this deeper question, though, that a bunch of recent essays and commentators have have been thinking about. So I'm thinking of Jamie Merchants and Jack Copley and uh, maybe Dylan Riley's pieces uh, in various publications that, you know, all of this is just symptomatic of declining growth and profit prospects of capitalism, that this is like the state kind of rescuing capital from its own overaccumulation or overcapacity crises. And, you know, that I think immediately raises the question of like, what is the left to do here? You know, on that deeper structural count, I'm very curious what my colleagues here think. You know, it's not immediately clear what the strategy is because it's such a long durée problem of of capital accumulation. But maybe looking at the more superficial level at the sort of political landscape, one read would be like, this is a kind of victory for the left. We are like the original critics of neoliberalism from the ultra-globalization movement onward. And now the political establishment is finally realizing that neoliberalism is exhausted, uh, not just economically, but as a kind of political strategy. So maybe we should claim that victory. Another approach is maybe more cynical. And I'm thinking of of Daniela Gabor, who, who was a guest on the Bidenomics show recently. You know, she sees a lot of continuity with prior accumulation regimes, right? Uh, and that maybe there's a lot of rhetoric of state intervention, but at the end of the day, capital is in the driver's seat and the state is not taking real like ownership control over any of these new sectors. There's also a lot of clear pitfalls, I think, especially on the internationalist front. You know, maybe we, we quote unquote, the left might like some of this new public policy attention to sort of public forms of investment or, or regulation, but we probably don't like the fact, or I would hope not, that they are obviously motivated by geopolitical and, and geoeconomic grounds. And so, you know, how do we orient to this new terrain push it leftward, whether that's through labor militancy or Green New Deal kind of approach, while maintaining our principled internationalism and, and even more hopefully kind of building political relationships more more broadly across borders. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in this answer, but I think across this whole conversation, I'm going to find, and I imagine we all are going to be find, finding that we have to speak somewhat speculatively and tentatively. And I don't think that's just a question of like not knowing the answer or a question of uncertainty, although it is, it is that. I also think there's a kind of important methodological element of that, right? I think that's part of what we do when we do conjunctural analysis of our own moment. And right, I think we can kind of helpfully distinguish that from sort of either excessively contingent or excessively deterministic analyses on either side that kind of characterize alternate ways of, of viewing the moment that would seem to kind of I think offer somewhat easier answers. And I think we don't have easy answers on a lot of these questions and therefore are, you know, are not going to have the most kind of pat or potted explanations. Um, and so, you know, forgive me in advance for, for some amount of uncertainty. That being said, um, uh, we often spoke after Trump was elected about an organic crisis, right? An organic crisis is a concept originally from Gramsci that then kind of gets 
taken back up and updated through through the Marxist tradition, in particular by Stuart Hall in relation to the rise of Thatcherism and the kind of crisis of social democracy in Britain. And then once again, in response to the rise of right-wing populism in the 2010s, organic crisis, one, one way of defining it would be a kind of systemic dissociation between political leaders and, the politi- and, and those they lead. And uh, it has an organic quality in Gramsci's sense, in as much as it is rooted in some kind of, uh, you know, structural and ultimately economic set of forces that are interacting on the conjunctural and kind of immediate level with the structure of political organization. So 2016 seemed to represent that very powerfully, in fact, in in both parties, right? The way that neither party establishment in the United States seemed able to kind of lead those that they saw as their constituencies compellingly anymore, um, such that one was kind of, you know, totally sort of robbed of its clothes and, you know, left naked by Trump and the other, you know, nearly so, and then was unable to kind of deliver what was supposed to be an easy victory, that being the Democrats. So building on what Thea is saying, it does seem to me like that put a profound scare into the Democrats. And the question is, what is the nature of that scare? What are the moves that they have made to adapt to that and kind of attempt to update and renovate the relationships between themselves, the political leadership of the left wing of capital, and those whom they lead, right? The kind of constituency um, or a set of constituencies that make up their coalition. And I do think, as Thea says, in a certain sense, it's fair to say that in response to some degree to the pressure from the left that they experienced in 2016 and 2020, and more so probably in response to the pressure from right-wing populism, and further the kind of international economic and geopolitical environment, the Democratic Party establishment has decided to make some, you know, significant, if not absolute, move away from a kind of neoliberal mode of political and economic organization. And I think this takes us back into kind of questions about the nature of the conjuncture or its internal structure and what is different about this moment from a moment... 10 years ago or something, you know, I've been thinking a lot and struggling a lot with um, the ways that what seem to be the profound economic limits on employment, on growth, that characterized the 2010s, what I kind of half-seriously called the endnotes decade in our last conversation, right, seem to kind of not be in effect right now anymore. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I've seen a lot, and I'm sure we all have, of these sort of graphs of the ways that U.S. macroeconomic performance is now more or less for the first time back on the pre-2008 track. Alex Williams, who works at Employee America, refers to this as the the frying pan graph, where there's a kind of pre-2008 diagonal line upward. It then goes sort of down after the financial crisis and is on a lower track for a period of time and then catches up to where it would have been more recently, right? That's the kind of outer lip of the frying pan. And, you know, I think that this, you know, it it generates a serious question about are the ideas that we, or at least I, found persuasive over the past 10 or 15 years, and that were fundamental, I think, to the kind of emergence of the socialist left that we're all a part of, were they mere artifacts of that moment? And in fact, does a kind of Keynesian left liberalism, in fact, have a satisfactory answer? to those challenges that was simply politically unavailable eight years ago or something? And what, if so, what does that mean about 
the entire kind of political orientation of you know the whole inter- the whole enterprise that we spent the whole last episode talking about right the dig itself and dsa and you know etc does is that whole enterprise thrown into some kind of crisis by the fact that the kind of coordinates of its formation seem not to be in effect anymore now i my view is that the answer to that is no um but i do think it generates a very serious political challenge and intellectual challenge for us how to try to synthesize the kind of long-term structural forces and pressures on both capital accumulation, economic growth, and class formation that, you know, we were able to sort of see and diagnose in a certain way in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis and out of which our own movements took shape with a resurgent liberalism and the proximate successes it's been able to deliver and the potential pathway out of an organic crisis that it seems able to chart. And we don't know yet that it is going to be able to chart that pathway, but there's a sort of credible hypothesis there. I don't know that we will deliver the answer to that challenge by the end of this episode, but it seems to me that that is the central political challenge for those of us on, on the left to try to confront. I mean, I think one of the things I find extraordinarily difficult about attempting to do conjunctural analysis of the period we're living in now is precisely there are just so many coordinates to take in and where to, and perhaps this is part of the nature of um, the poly crisis, but there's just so many things to take in and so many sites of struggle and partly because of all the rejuvenated sites of struggle, whether it's labor, environment, um, anti-policing and prisons, etc., that in itself generates a lot of points of friction and a various sets of contradiction, not to mention the, you know, since in this question we're focused on the question of policymaking, here we're focused on Bidenomics, but policymaking is happening at all, you know, so in all sorts of modes of statecraft at, you know, local, state, federal, and, and you know, municipal levels, etc., I thought the episode last week's episode or uh, ten days ago on Bidenomics was really extraordinary, and I'd encourage you know listeners to check that out for a deeper kind of exploration of that. My understanding of the term Bidenomics is in part it's coined by the administration itself as a way to package itself as doing something distinctive and new to respond in particularly robust ways leading into the next election cycle um, to the various crises that we're facing, and so to that extent. Um, you know, I think it's kind of important to focus, to look at the IRA in the way that last week's listeners did, but also to think more broadly about the range of other things that the Biden administration has done, which also go to the same set of questions. And so I'm thinking about a couple of things. One, um, of course, and listeners will be very aware of the student debt cancellation campaign the, uh, that the Debt Collective had been waging for years before um, President Biden issued the executive order and then it went through the courts. And as we all know, the limited and um, means-tested mode of uh, debt cancellation that the administration put into place was then struck down, that that, you know, was something to kind of think about both uh, the organizing that it required, the limited nature of that win, what, you know, the battle through the courts has kind of done to the organizing and what the debt collective is able to do now in terms of addressing this very real material reality of the extraordinary level of indebtedness that most Americans carry in order to live and survive every day um, to, uh, you know, kind of mass struggle at the level of policy and beyond. Um, The second thing is on the climate questions, um, and Thea, I'd be really particularly curious what you make of this, but of course, in addition to all the things within the IRA, 
um, the approval of the Conoco Phillips. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but the Willow Project in Alaska. Um, and then the administration's also approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia and Virginia. Um, that's, I think, Equitrans Midstream, that oil pipeline. Those also have to be kind of part of the mix with these questions. Um, and then I also was thinking about Biden and Congress's intervention in the, in the possible railway strike last year, imposing an agreement on the railroad workers that didn't include, for example, paid sick leave. And so the various ways that the Biden administration is kind of weighing in on different forms of economic and labor struggle and policy seems extraordinarily contradictory and very complex. And as is the case, and I would say all kind of areas of policymaking, on the one hand, you know, we can tell grand stories and we need to tell them in some sense about capital's hold on lawmaking and the relationship between the political class and and capital, but at the same time, you know, to kind of attend to the varying and different contradictions once you focus in on different levels of either geographic centers of policymaking or different, you know, areas of policymaking or even within the same area like climate kind of contradictory things that are happening at the same time. Yeah. You know, what it draws out for me is the way that that the state is kind of both a terrain of struggle, of course, uh, and lots of uh, Marxist theories of the state focus on that. At the same time that it can, in certain circumstances, be like a very important protagonist in that struggle. And I feel like some of the contradictions in here in the tensions between those two roles. The Inflation Reduction Act was this big piece of climate and energy legislation. On the one hand, it, it actually really aids conjunctural analysis in the sense that the Inflation Reduction Act's passage itself was a kind of clarifying lens on the balance of class and political forces. So it's it's sometimes interesting that like, in a way, a piece of policy is itself a lens on the political terrain. And like here we see that the main actors are like an ascendant but not hegemonic green fragment of capital, the obdurate fossil capital, like the obdurate power of fossil capital, which you mentioned, Amna, in terms of those pipelines that keep getting approved, relatively marginalized labor, grassroots climate and environmental justice movements, not not absent, but just not as powerful as either of those two forces. And so the, the legislation kind of reflects that and distills that that balance of power. But as soon as the legislation passes, it also kind of reinforces and maybe even exacerbates some of the asymmetries between those different groups. So the IRA like floods a bunch of money to green tech and clean tech and whatever we want to call it, further empowering that fragment of capital vis-a-vis like grassroots climate activists, which maybe were a necessary tactical ally of like a more junior green tech industry. But now that green tech is like flush with state and, you know, private finance, like it doesn't need political allies among climate advocates as much, right? So it kind of takes off as its own force. And some of these contradictions are about how like different forces are playing out on the state, but then the state is also, to borrow a term in a different context, like picking winners, giving further resources to some forces over others in in, in a conflict. And I see that playing out very clearly with, with the IRA, at least. I think a lot of this discussion relates to the question of how the left should relate to American liberalism, how it has related to American liberalism, how it is relating to an American liberalism. And it's, it's of course, an American liberalism, as as everyone's been pointing out, that's been changing fast, including, including, I think, due to challenges from the left, the challenges that we've, over the past decade, been discussing in both parts of this interview. But looking back to, to the beginning of this new American left, it was a new American left defined, I think, by the generational experience 
first and foremost of of millennials. And I think we're two old millennials and or maybe a, a, a middle-aged millennial, an old, two old millennials, and a gen and a young Gen Xer, maybe on this, if I if I if I recall. Um, but but it was this left starting over a decade ago. It was initially built in response to and against a liberalism that seemed exhausted and very much in crisis. I think there are probably like one million dig episodes from 2017 with that framing. And on the one hand. Bidenomics reflects, as we've discussed, this newly vibrant liberal policymaking milieu that explicitly, very explicitly breaks with neoliberalism, at least rhetorically. And also on that hand, during the Trump years, we saw a ton of liberal organization and mobilization in terms of money raised, elections won, and perhaps even in terms of volunteers mobilized with groups like Indivisible. It was also the liberal frame as much, if not more than ours, that predominated the framing of major events and social movements with significant left presence, whether we're talking about the Women's March or Black Lives Matter. But on the other hand, liberalism still does seem very politically exhausted. The fact, first and foremost, the fact that Biden will be the Democratic nominee, even though polls show that most Democrats think he is far too old to run, I think that says a lot. Not only is there not another Bernie in the wings, which is a big problem for for the left, there's not another Obama either. The liberal bench seems empty. So are we dealing with a new revitalized American liberalism or a liberalism, an American liberalism that is still very much in various ways exhausted and in crisis or somehow both? You know, I recall, I'm sure we all have memories like this. I recall in the 2020 primaries, door after door after door, or, you know, talking with, you know, friends or colleagues or relatives of an older generation about the primary, whatever it was. One of the most common things I said was, it might be that someone other than Bernie could beat Trump. I really can't say. I don't think that just beating Trump is going to resolve the, fun, the underlying sources of Trumpism, we have to kind of go much further than that if we're hoping to kind of exit the situation that gave us Trump. Right? Only Ber- Bernie is the only candidate who represents a potential social force that could carry out a program of such depth and force, right? And that, I think, is in some tension with what I suggested a moment ago about Biden and his administration, you know, potentially charting a path out, out of the organic crisis through, you know, running a high-growth economy and low unemployment and raising wages at the bottom of the scale and so on. I think the way to resolve that tension is to ask ourselves what will be necessary to uh, translate some of the kind of new direction represented by, by Bidenomics, by the IRA, to translate that into a more durable historical block. It, again, as a kind of Gramscian term, uh, in American political language, you might call that realignment, right? A process of realignment. In other words, right, to escape the kind of partisan deadlock, right? The the figurehead of each party is a kind of like senescent 80-year-old who's hated by most of the population and, you know, has a 40% approval rating. To escape that situation, which is an expression of the kind of lingering elements or persistent elements of the orga- what I call the organic crisis, I think you would need a significant shift in the balance of power inside the Democratic Party, uh, which in turn would have to represent, have to rest upon 
real assertion from the left and from below of working class organization and other other forms of um, you know not just trade unions but uh, other, you know other forms of working class social power and economic power you know in the housing movement the student movement etc and I think it's only in such a kind of internally recomposed coalition which would remain an interclass coalition between capital and labor to some degree uh, right we, we would continue to have in fact capital ultimately in the driver's seat but with a differently tilted set of compromises holding the coalition together uh, I think that that's the only scenario in which the current possibility of an exit from the organic crisis actually could really yield that. Now, I don't think that's a totally impossible scenario to imagine, but I think in some ways the partial successes that the left has won out of liberalism or the limited successes that the left has won out of liberalism have had their intended political effect, which is to disorient us and make us unsure about how to kind of continue the challenge that we mounted in 2016 and 2020, a challenge which ironically is necessary for liberalism's own success. Just as the previous major moments of challenge to ruling class power in our national history in the 1860s and the 1930s depended on working class and left-wing forces compelling coalition partners in the ruling class to afford them more concessions, which in turn empowered those coalition partners because it gave them a larger and more mobilized grassroots base, and that enabled the possibility of resolution to an organic crisis and, and a political realignment. I think that is the only path by which the kind of open possibility of realignment or of exit from the organic crisis might actually be realized. Yeah, Gabe, so to, to put your response another way, j- just how revitalized is American liberalism if it's not up to that fundamental task of realigning American politics, breaking the present impasse or, or organic crisis in creating a new governing majority that fundamentally defeats what is still a very vibrant far right. To do that, American liberalism would have to be willing to make concessions to the left in some form which would consist of its willingness to discipline capital in a way that it has not yet done. I, I think also in, in liberal elites' own kind of political failures, which I think we're witnessing, like we're witnessing their sort of economic success under constrained conditions, like certainly unemployment levels are lower, inflation is being tamed, like there's been some reduction in inequality, like low-wage sectors of the economy have seen wage growth. These are all real things that that there's no reason to like dispute their reality. There's some economic managerial success paired with like total political failure. The fact that it's such an open question, who will win the presidency amidst economic success is like, why? Why wouldn't you just get political success if you manage the economy well? Which I think itself points to like the limits of policy on its own as like a mechanism of realignment. A lot of other things need to be happening beyond just like good policy. And that's like an easy dig to make at liberals from the left. It's easy to be like, oh, you think PDFs are power or you think like policies can remake the world. Those are easy 
jabs that I have said myself many times, but they equally apply to the left. When we're in power, we also think and want to believe that like better policies that are non-reformist reforms that like help improve the material conditions of the working class also help empower the working class politically and generate positive feedback loops. Like this is also like the hope of the Latin American pink tide. So I think that we need to think seriously, not just like dismissively about liberalism, though I'm, I'm here for that, I guess, but like seriously about what it takes to start those positive cycles of working class empowerment, because it's very clear that policy alone does not do it, even if policy improves the material conditions of the working class, gives them a little more space and leverage to act politically. They may not take up that space and leverage and act politically. Of course, we will talk about labor militancy later, but it's clear that like there is a disconnect there. And how do we get from policy change to realignment? Um, and why why policy change is like never enough to, to trigger uh, realignment on its own? I think the particular form of liberalism that we've been living with for at least the last decade, if not few, I don't see it as being revitalized. I see it as kind of attempting to grasp onto or hold onto whatever form of power, economic, social, cultural, that it has had with changing as little as possible, sometimes against all evidence. And so and so I agree with both, both what Gabe and Thea said, that the face of liberalism and its embodiment in the political elite is not going to change in any real way without a shift in the balance of forces. And that doesn't happen without working class power and the growing power of the left to discipline both the political elite and capital to make different kinds of moves. And I think there's all sorts of ways that we could think about how that might happen. And I think we're going to be exploring that in the next few hours. But in the context of, you know, the world that I live in and the world of law policy and the courts, for example, I think the many discourses on the Supreme Court and the way that people think about that is one of many examples. On the one hand, you see growing concern about the relationship between the right-wing court and um, right-wing politics, as well as the relationship between right-wing justices and capital embodied by particular right-wing figures with you know billions and millions at their disposal and jets and vacations and golf courses and all that kind of stuff. Um, and on the other hand, you have a continued kind of fixation both on the liberal justices and their reasoning and their opinions um, in ways that don't create any pathways for, you know, a shift in the balance of powers or a shift in imagination about how you might think about these differently or think about different ways um, to redress these various crises. Um, I don't see um, a revitalization. I just see a desperate kind of attempt to hold on to power. Many of these these debates on the left that we've been referencing involve questions of Marxism and or Marxism versus Keynesianism. And to what extent this this polycrisis we're confronting is one that can be managed without ending and then surpassing the capitalist mode of production. On one level, I think we can all agree that a revolutionary overturning of the present state of things would be ideal, just excellent. But given the the unlikelihood the apparent unlikelihood of that happening in the short or medium term, that analysis to me can also feel rather doomerist. 
that that anything short of revolution is is doomed to fail. So why bother? How should we as Marxists, as socialists, navigate our short and medium term political demands, given our understanding of the structural inability of capitalism to ultimately favorably resolve these questions for for the vast majority of us living on this planet, including in terms of the health of this planet, even, as you mentioned, Gabe, even as American capitalism does appear to be capable of far, far more dynamism than many of its most left-wing critics might have thought. Should we consider ourselves in a sort of alliance or front with liberals and particularly progressive Keynesians in the policy world or in government? And and maybe that like we're caught in such an alliance, whether we like it or not. And so the question is more how to do an alliance rather than whether to do it, because it seems like the American left is constantly caught up in searching for political independence while inevitably finding ourselves in coalition. Important to your question is this is this issue of capitalist dynamism. And I'm not sure that's what I see. Certainly, there's a lot of growth happening in a variety of sectors, and there's you know, renovated kind of investment and finance opportunities across the economy. Uh, I'm not downplaying that. But what seems so important in capitalist dynamism, if we want to call it that, is the role of the state. Meaning what seems clearer than ever is that capitalist dynamism rests on state intervention. And so that's an interesting fact, right? And we can call that new, or we can say it's always already been that way, right? And that's sort of these recent debates uh, in the New Left Review and elsewhere around, like, is this a new political phase of capitalism or has capitalism always required the state? However we periodize it, it's clear that in this moment, capitalist investment is really dependent on state action, which sort of brings us to this question of how to, what's the kind of Marxist or socialist take or strategy on that question? The Keynesian take is rather clear and is in watered down ways what is being implemented by the administration. You know, how might we distinguish our industrial policies, I'll put it that way, from Keynesian industrial policies? I, you know, I think there's some overlap, but there's also some, some tension or conflict. To Amna's point, is this revitalized liberalism, revitalized industrial policy, or is this just like a last grasp at restoring the social order? You know, in a weird way, I think it can be kind of both, right? In the sense that we definitely see something like the liberal state rescuing capitalism from a variety of potential like overcapacity or underinvestment crises. And that that is working in a limited sense of that term. But then what what the left orientation should be, because it's obviously clearly not enough to just say we need more state because we're getting more state, but we're getting more state in a way that's extremely friendly uh, to capitalist investment. In fact, like the the condition of capitalist investment in the first place. You know, there's more than one Keynes, right? Um, I mean, Keynes is a notoriously kind of ambiguous and complex figure who, on the one hand, would never even joined the Labour Party and was a kind of obdurate liberal all his life. On the other hand, uh, famously, right, predicts the euthanasia of the rentier and, in fact, calls for, you know, and expects the shortening of the working day and the socialization of investment. And I do think that, you know, it's possible for Marxists to kind of appropriate some of that side of Keynes. And you've had many guests say this before, obviously, uh, you know, Tim Barker, Aaron Beninav, to try to understand the ways in which the particular conjuncture of expand, you know, the expansion of state involvement in accumulation creates opportunities for us to politicize the question of economic growth. And I do think this is what's happening in the kind of 
increasingly incessant, incessant debates about Green New Deal, degrowth, et cetera. We are politicizing the question of economic growth exactly because of the ways that the state is increasingly involved or newly and expandedly involved in the current moment in the direction of economic growth and investment, even if it's not doing so, as Thea says, in ways that you know we would choose. And I do think that, that that means to your kind of then political question, Dan, about the nature of the kind of coalition between liberals and the left that one also has to see that in two ways, right? That it is, as you say, kind of has a kind of objective reality in some ways that we don't get to choose. I think the question for us is how to engage in the kinds of conflict inside the coalition that we don't get to choose that take advantage of the opportunities presented by this particular conjuncture. That is, it, it seems to me, the kind of nub of the coalitional question. Amna, you recently wrote an article about non-reformist reforms that I think that I think has a lot to do with this question, the question of how we move forward under conditions where we're not in power, not close to being in power, but not entirely marginal either, that we often find ourselves, whether we like it or not, as, you know, junior coalition partners to liberals, able to influence the system we're living under, but but certainly not running it. I guess to put it bluntly, if revolution's off the table in the short term, how under these conditions should we be thinking about reforms and relatedly about coalitional alliances with, with liberals? So we're living in a time, as we all know, that our, our movements for the last several years in particular have been using the language of non-reformist reforms as a way to think about how to engage in reform, not to the end of reformism or fixing liberalism, but how to use the tool of reform as a way towards more revolutionary or transformative ends, how to use struggles for reform as a way to shift the balance of power. Um, And whereas some years ago, it seemed a little bit more living in the level of discourse, we now have today, I think about the student debt cancellation campaign, about Um, demands to cancel rent and the tenant union organizing that kind of surged during the pandemic, of course, defund the police, um, the socialist and the non-socialist Green New Deal to some extent, um, the Red Deal that the um, Red Nation had talked about, Stop Cop City, No Dapple, um, and so on. And so there's a whole range of examples that we could look at. When you try to think about them together, I think they teach us a range of things. First, I think one of the things that's been really important about all of these campaigns is that they're responding to a range of material crises that millions of people across the country and even around the world are experiencing. And they posit ways of responding that kind of, you know, are are exit routes in a way to the kind of conventional liberal and neoliberal policy responses that we've been living with for decades. And so... The second thing that they do then is that they gesture at a distinct conception of what the state might do and what state capacity might look like. And, you know, kind of one where that doesn't respond, that neither defers to capital or the market, um, but one that responds to human and planetary need with real respect and deference for social and ecological reproduction and um, working people. And then third, I think the really important thing is that they've drawn from and merged out of social organization and social movement organization in different ways, whether it's the DSA, prison abolitionist organizing around the country, or the debt collective. And so um, I think all of these campaigns have been hugely important and really influential. 
And in various ways, you can kind of mark the ways that they have won. And winning, as anyone who's organized knows or studies the history of social movements, um, winning is really important, not just because it shifts the balance of power, but winning is what it takes to build organization. People want to join things that are winning. And of course, one of our most important kind of crises and problems for the left and anyone who um, is fighting for you know, a, a more just world is precisely the sense of hopelessness that pervades um, life in the United States and around the world. The fact, you know, like that we're living under deep crises and yet, you know, that there's no way to kind of change things in a way that would make life better for most people. And so winning within, one of the lessons I think of the last decade is how winning takes extraordinary persistence, discipline and militancy in a way that takes organization that I don't know that we yet have developed or that you know we know how to build or what form it'll take. And the other side, of course, has a lot, a, a lot easier time doing this than we do. I mean, one of the things that um, different Marxist thinkers who have written about the state, including Polancis, has helped me to see, I think I'm not gonna get the quote quite right, but he has this language in one of his books about Um, that part of the function of the state under capitalism is to organize the dominant classes and to disorganize the dominated classes. And I think we see that, I mean, going back to what Theo was saying about how policy struggles both kind of um, reflect the balance of forces, but also reconstitute them uh, in different ways. Um, We see that in all of these struggles, whether it's the debt cancellation struggle or the um, campaign to stop cop city. So you can think about how, for example, in Atlanta, it seems fairly clear that the campaign to build the multi-million dollar police facility that would require clear cutting hundreds of acres um, of the Atlanta, of the Willani Forest is pretty unpopular in Atlanta, not just in uh, DeKalb County where the city and the police wanna build it, but also throughout the city. And yet, despite extraordinary work by organizers and communities to kind of constitute that democratic opposition, um, the city and the state have gone to extraordinary ends to discipline, kill, prosecute, and make unpopular and seem exogenous, the whole outsider kind of discourse, the opposition to Cop City. And so I say all of that to say, even when we can do things that seem almost impossible. I don't think I could have told you a couple, like I, when the cop city struggle started, I don't think I could have anticipated as, as an outsider of Atlanta, um, that it would be so clear a couple years in that it was unpopular locally. And I think because of the organizing, not just in Atlanta, but around the country, I think that's fairly clear now. And despite kind of all of the different kinds of wins of that campaign and that movement, including now it's turned to Uh, try to put the issue on a ballot through a referendum um, effort, the state keeps, you know, kind of, and and its allies keep um, kind of throwing extraordinary blocks in the way of the campaign. Um, And so that's all to say, 
yes, we don't have enough power to call the shots on policy fights, you know, broadly construed. I think of Stop Cop City as a way as a law and policy fight. Um, and so alliances must be built and the, they require different kinds of contradictions. And maybe sometimes, you, you know, like, like the Cop City campaign has kind of embodied, you know, you can agree to disagree in terms of involving and allowing for different strategies and tactics without allowing the coalition to fall apart. And on the other hand, it's, it takes extraordinary persistence and adaptation to overcome all of the different ways um, that some of those same forces and their allies are going to try to fight you back at every juncture. So building on what you were saying, Amna, the left doesn't have the power to impose its demands, right? And quite rarely in capitalist societies, in fact, does the left have the power to impose its demands because of the way that the state organizes the ruling class and disorganizes the working class. So, you know, it occasionally happens that way, but most of the time, instead, what happens is even when the left is relatively more powerful and organized and mobilized, the effects of its power manifest themselves indirectly, mediated through coalition partners who are both managing and isolating the left and also trying to kind of use it for their own purposes to expand their own power. That's to say liberals who benefit in certain ways from a stronger left as a kind of threat that they can wield over their antagonists, so long as they can also make sure that they keep that left contained and divided. So I was also thinking about Polanzas, who I think has, I, I looked up um, a line of his that I often return to, where he says, um, the state organizes and reproduces class hegemony by establishing a variable field of compromises between the dominant and dominated classes. Quite frequently, this will even involve the imposition of certain short-term material sacrifices on the dominant classes in order that their long-term domination may be reproduced. But, he emphasizes, there are not over here state functions in favor of and imposed by the popular masses and over there pro-capital economic functions. All measures taken by the capitalist state, even those imposed by the popular masses, are in the last analysis inserted into a pro-capitalist strategy or are compatible with the expanded reproduction of capital. And in fact, popular gains... I'm paraphrasing now, but popular, popular gains will be, he says, quote, progressively stripped of their initial content and character. And I think like that is a very helpful way of thinking about the dynamics of coalition and compromise, right? That even as the power of the left grows, as I think we all kind of agree, it basically more or less has done uh, over the last 12 or so years, right? The kind of measure or symptoms of that power don't appear in such a way that we can see them directly most of the time. And instead, we kind of have to impute their passage through this black box, which is the coalition with liberals, which we can't really just exit either. I think that is a general tendency under like liberal capitalist democracies as a sort of regime type and, and also uh, obviously economic system. Uh, but But some of them feel exacerbated by elements of the specific political regime type and party system of the U.S. Like, I remember in the wake of Bernie's uh, defeat in the primaries and in the sort of, like, gearing up or attempt to gear up enthusiasm for for Biden as, as, the, as the candidate and then as the president, there were all these discussions about, like, it sort of on the left liberal side of the spectrum, like, is the left the junior partner now? Is it clear that's because, like, Bernie did better than expected, maybe, and because obviously he, like, was able to mobilize parts of the Democratic constituency that it had been relatively demobilized uh, by prior uh, uh, Democratic leaders? Is there a way in which the left's position as a key junior partner to, like, 
the center is now like clarified and like the left isn't in the driver's seat, but it's like an important passenger seat or something like that, right? And I just, while I, I understood why people were saying that, it just felt so incorrect in the context of a two-party presidential system with actually relatively weak parties. And what what I mean by that is that we don't have a parliamentary system in which we could at least clearly claim like, yes, literally there is a coalition between like the Labour Party and like the Centre Party, right? Where there isn't any literal coalition between parties. It's all internal to the party, which masks it a bit and I think makes it even harder for it to be clear when it's like the left's role and the left can claim some kind of victory or not because like the co-optation and the kind of confusing of agency like happens even, you know, in a, in a prior way. Given that it's all within a party and it's not like on a clear political stage as relationships between parties, I think that the, these tendencies that we've just been talking about are exacerbated. And the sort of flip side to that is that because in sort of comparative politics terms, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but just, just we're just talking about the Democratic Party now, are relatively like weak parties. Like they don't exercise any strong discipline over their members. That also means that like the right of the party can like continue to exercise a lot of power, right? So I'm thinking of Joe Manchin, right? Like there's no way to discipline Joe Manchin and say you simply cannot keep doing what you're doing, right? So even an asymmetric but clear like coalition, like an impossibility. We don't have coalitions between parties. We have like a sort of mess of different constituencies and power struggles that take place within a party. I have one more question about about the left's vexed relationship to liberalism. Less less a strategic question and more an an abstract one. Because the relationship also extends to how we think about about liberalism in terms of political and moral philosophy. A liberal theory of the political subject, what the good life is, and also to these core political institutions in our government, institutions that, of course, the Republican Party has been increasingly attacking from the right. What is slash what should be the relationship of the American left to this other deeper set of ideas and institutions that make up American liberalism in the 21st century? Are we an illiberal or non-liberal alternative to those ideas and institutions? Or are we instead proposing the realization of liberalism's undelivered promise, a promise that liberalism cannot actually deliver? I mean, I think there's some risk in the idea that, you know, liberalism has, in a kind of idealized sense, already produced a full vision of human liberation that in a practical and historical sense is not able to deliver because that kind of suggests that struggles for liberation that don't arise out of a vision of, you know, liberal individual emancipation are in some way derivative until they join that trajectory. And it seems to me that the socialization of the individual that Marxism describes is a very profoundly different idea than that, right? That, that, that Marxism seems to uh, observe in the trajectory of modern society or in capitalist society, the decomposition of the liberal individual and the possibility of deeper and richer forms of human interdependence and intersociality in which the boundaries of the self are more permeable than they are in a kind of liberal philosophy. It seems to me that what that means in terms of our actual political struggles and our political orientation is that on the one hand, 
politically in a kind of everyday way in the course of the development of a given historical conjuncture, what we are doing is trying to realize the agenda of liberalism in a way that it itself cannot. That's all I've been saying for the last hour and a half in a certain way, right? It's like, actually, it's only with left mobilization that liberalism itself is going to be strong enough to break the impasse, but liberals have to feel the pressure from the left to be forced to do what's going to be good for liberalism, and then we'll figure out what to do with liberals after that, uh, right? Um, and so at a kind of practical political level, I think that's the case. I think the way to kind of balance that drawing on the kind of philosophical or theoretical point is with a confidence in the idea that the development of capitalist society itself is decomposing the liberal individual, right? And I think we can talk more about what that looks like practically, but that, you know, I, I think it actually, to be a Marxist, one must think that. For me, anyway, that is a kind of fundamental baseline that it's not about ideas or philosophies of the individual, but that actually the kind of nature of what it means to be an individual person is changing materially and historically such that we can keep fidelity with that in our struggles and the way that we organize our struggles and construct left-wing organizations and construct left-wing ideas about uh, our vision of the good life, our vision of human emancipation and the forms of solidarity that we think are required to us. It's in those practices that we, it seems to me, and at that level that we attempt to separate from or, or move past liberalism, even as at, the, at a kind of practical political level, political in a more narrow sense, we try to realize it. And that then, I think, on a good day, um, generates a future possible contradiction that's a good one to have, right? That, that, that generates a, f a kind of future site of ruptures with a triumphant liberalism, which is better to have than, than uh, conflict with a defeated liberalism. An association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all, perhaps. Right. <laughs> and of course, I think the, the key challenge for the left now, in some sense, is to insist on and understand that the, the, the need to build social collective space where people can experience that different form of being that, um, you know, many of us who have participated in different movement organizations or labor formations of various sorts have experienced to kind of create that space where people can experience solidarity and then um, in a sustainable way and build on that and write it. Let's turn back to the conjuncture in a more concrete sense. The years since Bernie 2016 have been for the left defined by a new electoral strategy, variously carried forth by DSA, Justice Democrats, the Working Families Party, and others to elect socialists, progressives, or left liberals, depending on the context, to elect them to office by running them in Democratic primaries. So I think first we should lay out how much of a shift this represented compared to the decades between the Jackson campaigns of the 1980s and 2016, when Bernie's first run proved to be so surprisingly electric. I still very clearly remember Bernie's announcement being buried like deep in the pages of the print New York Times, me being like, oh, cool, I'm going to vote for him. And this isn't really going to matter. This is going to be like a much cooler version of Dennis Kucinich. Obviously, things turned out very differently. But then on the other hand, since Bernie lost in 2020, it seems like there's been a bit of a backlash on the left against this electoral program or maybe electoral programs, even as major victories continue to take place. Brandon Johnson's Merrill win in Chicago is one recent very big example. So 
first, what did it mean? What sort of historical shift was taking place to have people like like AOC running and winning congressional races and so many others running and winning city council and state legislative seats? Thea, you and I both worked on the Nader campaign in 2000, even though we were too young to vote. How does the period that begins with Bernie 2016 compare to where we were at prior to that, including very much in 2000? And then what's your overall assessment of the left's electoral organizing projects? What have its successes been and what have been some of the limits? And then lastly, what have been some of the limits either real or perceived? Is there a resurgent mood on the left of either anti-electoralism or, or third-partyism? Yeah, as as you said, you know, we as as pre-voting age both volunteered on the 2000 Nader campaign, but I'll just say for myself that the obvious total failure of that campaign and even worse failure of subsequent Green Party campaigns, like for me personally, since there was ob- at that moment not a DSA, not a kind of socialist tactical use of the ballot line, right? Like, since those were not on offer, I just became an anarchist, right? I mean, and I mean that just very literally. Like, I I thought that the state was just, like, beyond left possibility and that the state was inherently going to reproduce capitalism. And so the best we could do was resistance movements, right, of various sorts. And that's where my politics personally took me uh, in that time period. And it was only actually going to Latin America during the pink tide where I began to think a little bit more complexly. And I I actually don't mean this to say that my anarchism was at all silly or immature. I don't think it was. I actually think in a way it was like materially uh, strategic to its moment in many ways and, and fine. But, you know, it was going to Latin America where I started to grapple a little bit more of like, well, what would it mean for like the left to seize the state? What would it mean for the left to orient to the state? Uh, And then kind of returning from Latin America and various fieldwork trips to a U.S. in which like Occupy had occurred and in which like DSA had begun to take off, these questions became more practical questions in the U.S. too. Like is sort of my route at least to sort of like re-encountering the possibility of 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 the party form, of the electoral form, of like these different arenas of contesting power that are not purely the streets, right, to, to kind of reinvoke that binary, if we want to call it that, that Amna brought up in the first part of this. To see the state as something, as a terrain that, that the left could and should, and that the working class more broadly could and should be acting upon. For me, at least, again, biographically and historically, like, it was a major shift. The idea that I would be volunteering my time for, for like, the Bernie campaign, let's say, if you had told me that in sort of the the early 2000s, I would have said like, no, I would never do that. There's no possibility of the left ever winning an electoral contest in the U.S., right? So in that 2016 Bernie first moment, I just remember very clearly first donating to the campaign, which is what I did prior to actually volunteering for it. I like, you know, again, to date myself and date the whole moment that we're talking about, like wrote on Facebook in a sort of like self-excusing way, like I just made my first donation to a Democratic Party candidate. I can't believe I'm doing this, right? Like as someone with my politics, right? And so I absolutely think it was a ma- was and maybe remains like a major sea change on on the U.S. left uh, from compared to the, the 90s and early 2000s. I'll echo the point that I think it was a major shift. And one of the many ways that it was a major shift was because it just put the question of state power, however distant it is and remains, back on the table for the left in a way that I think 
was transformative for the kind of work that people were ready to take on and the appetite for engaging in different forms of political struggle. Struggles are uneven and also that they are constant. And it's hard to kind of make broad generalizations about everything that was happening before 2016 or even in the decade before. But generally speaking, you know, felt before then that many of our fights were more defensive um, and defensive fights are incredibly important. But I think it's partly that shift and we can kind of talk about the contradictions of that, but it's partly that shift of feeling some proximity to not just electoral office, but federal, national electoral office that I think electrified um, and changed the dynamics of the left and young people thinking about the possibilities and limits of change um, through legal process in the country. The second thing is, I mentioned this briefly last time, but I do think it's worth thinking a little bit more about Obama, because I think Obama, Obama's election is a huge, and obviously the backlash to it is a huge part of the conjuncture and the moment that we're in now. Um, obviously, there's many stories that we could tell about that, but I think part of what produces the squad and the broader kind of left wing and electoral politics now is precisely kind of the group of young people, in particular black young people who voted for the first time uh, in Obama's first run for presidential office, many of whom, when you uh, talk to people or you could listen to conversations with like Philip Agnew or Melanie Stamp or James Hayes um, from Ohio, people will talk about voting for Obama, being excited by and then disappointed by his election and what he was capable of doing, and then being radicalized by participating in Occupy, obviously the killing of Trayvon Martin and uh, Troy Davis, and kind of um, thinking about those uh, contradictions which we talked about last time, leading to the rise of um, Black Lives Matter, but a sense there that the pre-existing kind of political establishment and the kinds of candidates that they were gonna produce um, and their political visions and the constituencies to whom they were accountable weren't going to respond to the very real material needs of um, not just that particular generation, but the public at large. Um, and so I think that piece is important. Um, I can't speak that directly to the turn against electoralism, but I guess what's the vehicle for that is seems to be in question since the DSA seems to be in an inflection point. Um, in terms of relating to electoral politics. Of course, I'm sure many people saw the news that like something like 10 days ago, Justice Democrats laid off a big percentage of its staff. So they're downsizing and they've been a huge part of this picture. Um, and then if you think about the ways in which abolitionist campaigns have been involved in electoral fights, in particular against prosecutors, for example, um, or different forms of police, uh, anti-police, anti-prison campaigns, um, you know, the many ways in which the progressive prosecutors have not only been its own form of like co-opting energy from the political class, but also the way that the so-called progressive prosecutors have kind of been fought back in different ways around the country with recalls and the like. I think there's a real question about, you know, where the energy is going to come from. Yeah, I would be reluctant to speculate about mood, I guess, but rather to say that disorientation about the possibilities and limits of electoral politics, the occasion for this discussion is also an occasion for disorientation. And th that disorientation is, to some degree, healthy, I think, um, or at least pausing to try to kind of figure it out and, you know, not being so sure is healthy. I guess in terms of the question of the relationship between the socialist left and the Democratic Party, 
I guess I would say that it's, it seems to me that the Democratic Party is a party of capital, that there's no way around that fact, and it's probably impossible to make it anything other than that, right? That it ha- has been that in some form for the entirety of its existence. And, you know, it's, it's, I think, quite deep in the nature of what it is as an organization. And, you know, in some ways, you know, the fantasy of, not fantasy, because it was, you know, it had a kind of logic, but the kind of vision of the Bernie campaign always depended on, to some degree, eliding that, I think. That being said, saying that, even saying we're not in it anymore, we're starting our own party, doesn't really solve the problem exactly. The problem is that capital has social power. People vote for the capitalist parties, not just because they're kind of under a veil of false consciousness produced by, you know, mass media and so forth, right? But because our society is organized in such a way as to materially reproduce the subordination of one class to another. And that subordination is manifest in loyalty to the capitalist parties. Now that loyalty is decayed in various ways, right? And in a moment where we were able to supplant the Democratic Party or defeat the Democratic Party and presumably also the Republican Party and whatever other fragments might exist with a socialist party from the left, uh, we would be in a moment where we had composed and cohered a social base sufficient to quite radically transform the country. And while running our own candidates is potentially a, you know, a good opportunity for ideological work in some moments and so forth, I don't think just posing the electoral alternative is going to be that clarifying. And in particular, because the relationship between the traditionally best organized sections of the working class and the Democratic Party is quite deep and complex. The, the way that African-American, the African-American working class is interpolated into the Democratic Party, right? That's not just ideological, it's really, or not merely kind of cultural or something, right? There's real material and organizational underpinnings to that. Similarly, the relationships between unions and the Democratic Party leadership, but you can't wish that stuff away. And so if you don't want to find yourself in opposition to some of the best organized parts of the working class, then I think, you know, remaining a kind of tactical participant uh, in the near term is probably necessary. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that a key reason we have and keep returning to this question of the left's vexed relationship to liberals is because it is precisely the Democratic Party's actually existing base that in significant part we want, like as our base. So, Gabe, I just want to kind of tie together some of what you were just saying to something that Amna said earlier on in this this conversation that's kind of stuck in my head, this kind of dynamic of or almost pendulum swing between the left kind of overestimating its power and then and then the, the swing in the other direction, uh, a feeling of perceived kind of helplessness or political marginality. In, in a context in which we don't like objectively and in a sort of bracing and maybe ruthless way, uh, we're not like really clear about what the constraints are to our power we enter into that pendulum, which kind of co-constitutes itself. If we don't really take seriously what the constraints are on like left, you know, seizing the state, so to speak, then we are in effect overestimating our political and social power because we're not taking constraints into account. And when we overestimate, the like guaranteed result of overestimating your power is disappointment because you, your own expectations for power are, not, are never going to be met if they're overestimated. And then we fall into this like kind of nihilism 
cynicism of like, oh, well, we were never going to win anyway. The, the game is rigged. The cards are stacked against us. Like, let's just like leave electoralism altogether or create a third party or whatever it is. By not taking seriously what the constraints are and grappling with those and, and, and thinking clearly from an organizing perspective about how we little by little through gritty and often maybe unpleasant or difficult work like overcome them, then we, then we overestimate and then we inevitably enter into nihilism and maybe even worse kind of cynicism. And that, that dynamic feels very clear to me over the past several years. All of these discussions of like, you know, the squad is voting in the wrong way or we, should, we need to force the vote or we should form a third party. I mean, all of those seem like downstream of actually an overestimation of what the left can do electorally at this particular juncture of history. Yeah, there's a certain analysis on the left, I think, that animates certain third partyist proposals that the primary obstacle to left power is that the left has not sort of broken free psychically or something of its attachment to the Democratic Party, that it keeps running candidates on the Democratic Party ballot line, and that if we simply engage in the bold tactic of running third-party candidates, that that will somehow be what allows the left to emerge more broadly as a independent, powerful political force. I do think, I mean, to be fair to that position, right, I do think that it would be ideologically clarifying to have independent socialist candidates doing that. And there would be value in that, uh, as there has been historically in other comparable situations. It's just that there would also be costs to that. Um, and I think that's the kind of conversation that we need to have about it. Uh, it's not like a move that we can make and capture all of that benefit without enduring major separation from the very narrow inroads that we've made into the working class. And I think that either way, however we resolve the electoral question, or more specifically, the ballot line question, that that will not be the answer to the bigger question of left political power in this country. Either way. Right. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. The Dig is produced with the help of our listeners who support us at patreon.com and in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret the world. But this work depends upon your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobin.com donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help us plan even better. That's jacobin.com donate. You'll keep us going in tough times, and we'll be there with you for the struggles to come. I may at some point need to dedicate an entire episode to the state of DSA, which will of course be a headache of a minefield to navigate. But what seems clear right now is that DSA membership has been declining significantly in recent years. I think there's some debate about to what extent those are kind of like core cadre type organizers and to what degree that's just sort of a shedding of of, of paper members who weren't that involved in the first place. But there is a absolute decline in dues paying members, a significant one. And factional fights within the organization are are sometimes very bitter, though 
I think from various factions within DSA, I've heard that the recent convention was actually notably comradely in, in its vibe. My question is, is socialism as the sort of national project that it's been since 2016 led by DSA, has that reached some sort of inflection point or plateau? What accounts for the current state of DSA in the ongoing fights and debates between the organization's so-called left and, and right wings, which often, again, revolve around this question we've touched on many, many times, which is how to relate to the Democratic Party. And I want to be careful here because none of us are are super engaged in DSA internal politics, I don't think, although all of us are DSA members. Two things very simply can be said about the convention, which I did not attend, but heard about and read about. You know, one is that there there is a that the sort of balance of power within the DSA has moved towards what some people would call, and this is a contested term, the organization's left. What the left versus right of DSA means and, and whether or not we even accept that terminology, I'm, I'm using it only because others use it, uh, uh, not, not because I really accept it per se, but what that tends to mean is exactly what you were getting at, Dan. It, it in part is defined by like what is our orientation towards like the bourgeois political state or something like that. And the more left positions are more skeptical of engaging with that state on that state's own terms. And at the very least want to engage on more autonomous terms and in some cases want to sort of disengage from that as a realm of politics and emphasize other arenas of struggle that aren't formal politics, but instead are like the workplace, uh, you know, tenant struggles. But on the other hand, and this is just as important, none of the attempts to like more cleanly break or dirty break, as it were, sorry, from the Democratic Party past, right? Meaning none of the resolutions, and I'm simplifying and vulgarizing a little bit here, but that like said, like we should not run, you know, use the ballot line or we should uh, have much more clear litmus test. You know, none of those passed, you know, resolutions did pass that sort of clarify what are the stakes in terms of our engagement with electoral politics, but, but resolutions that attempted to kind of like take DSA out of the electoral arena uh, did not pass. So, you know, both those things can be true at once, which is that they're is some support in the organization for more principled left kind of positions, let's put it that way, uh, or more strident left positions. On the other hand, there is not majority support for like totally abandoning the ballot line tactic. From my perspective, electoral politics is the place where the contributions of DSA have been the most obvious and clear, typically with the notable successes coming in coalition with uh, left liberal allies of different kinds of justice Democrats or whatever, you know, even things like indivisible or whatever in some places, I'm sure, uh, right? There's a kind of interesting on-the-ground coalition that I think has played out with resistance liberals in lots of cases. And I think, you know, we have encountered the limits of an electoral program that has outpaced the kind of social recomposition and reorganization of the constituency that DSA wants to wants to represent and lead. That's not to say DSA hasn't done a ton of work in that vein. It has. But, you know, so that's sort of harder work in some ways, right? Like, not that contesting elections is easy, but, you know, there's like a date that is set and a process. You know, get the petitions, you file the thing, you knock on the doors. You kind of like know how to do it to some extent, whether you succeed or not. 
how to reorganize the working class, how to, you know, radicalize existing unions and rebuild union democracy or organize unorganized workers or organize tenants or, you know, organize debtors, right? I mean, those are extraordinarily open-ended challenges. And there's been some progress in some of those. I think in particular, the work inside the labor movement, the existing labor movement, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure. Um, it's a really, I think, notable area of progress and success. But nonetheless, I think there is a understandable and probably unavoidable lag between the electoral work and the other kinds of organizational work. And without the latter being better, de- much better developed than it is, which is very easy to say and very hard to do, I think DSA will never lead the popular force that it wants to, that it has to lead. And, you know, it, I, th- I do think it's important to say that in 1936, you know, about 100,000 Communist Party members, I think, roughly. Uh, It was about the same absolute size as DSA was a year or two ago. And around each of those members, there was a kind of wider circle of people who, you know, wanted to hear what they thought about the election, wanted to hear what they thought about the latest news from Spain, wanted to know, you know, what is the union going to do about this, right? And in that way, the party, its presence in everyday life in working class communities and social worlds was able to not accomplish everything that it hoped to, but to cohere a significant social base. And I think that figuring out how to make progress on that front, to me, seems critical, even for figuring out how to make further progress on the electoral front. That reminds me of Thea's opening comment in terms of the left versus right of the organization being a a sometimes unhelpful framework. Because in this case, for example, personally, I'm pretty comfortable running candidates as as Democrats, uh, not, you know, in a hurry to do the the dirty break for for strategic reasons and reasons of reading present conditions, which is a a position of the so-called organizational right. But on the other hand, I fully agree with you, and this is my own priority as an organizer, that we need to double down on labor and tenant organizing, a position I think of DSA's so-called, you know, left wing. So these are not necessarily like neatly resolved left versus right questions. Yeah, I'm probably most on the periphery of the organization, but, you know, having participated to some extent in the Columbus chapter and then just talking to people and reading things about the DSA around the country, I mean, I think one thing that's really striking to me is it does seem that because of the independence that the chapters have, which is part of what's allowed it to grow in the way that it has, that uh, on the one hand, the electoral orientation seems common. And on the other hand, chapters have done all sorts of other kinds of work to differing degrees. And some chapters have been much more successful and are much more engaged in a nitty gritty way with local and state level electoral work than in others. Um, So in New York, for example, um, from what I understand, there have been, you know, a bunch of, there are a bunch of DSA electeds at the state legislature, whereas in Ohio, for example, we haven't had much luck with running successfully any um, DSA candidates. Uh, You know, one of the difficult questions for the left that's been here, (laughs) been with us for, for decades, forever, is kind of how to think about other ways of doing it beyond electoral organizing. And I think part of the 
problem with the DSA's orientation, in my view, has not been that it's been focused on electoral organizing, but it's kind of how to balance that with the other forms of organizing that um, we all know needs to be done and as uh, you know, and that we know is difficult and, as Gabe said, easier to invoke than to do. Um, and to some extent, DSA chapters have done it, whether you know, it's really important work in D.C. with the Stump Out Slumlords campaign and support for different kinds of strikes around the country and that kind of thing. Um, but in my experience, both seeing the work and then, you know, uh, at differing degrees of proximity, um, they're just not as much kind of experience uh, and intergenerational kind of knowledge that can be passed around about how to do that kind of organizing. And I see that not just in the DSA, uh, but I think it's a broader problem for the left is how to learn and do and sustain uh, whether that's about funding or people or both, um, organizing and actually base building over the long term. I think that's been, on the one hand, we have a much larger social base for the left than we have during my lifetime. And on the other hand, it's still minuscule in comparison to you know the work that we're hoping to do. We've talked a bunch about the state of left electoral politics and its recent proximate history. Thea, what do climate politics look like under Biden, both in general and specifically on the left? Has has a certain particular moment of left climate politics that, that revolved around the Green New Deal as a concept and around Sunrise as an organization, has that in some ways passed? And relatedly, I think repeatedly what we've seen for quite a long time now is a lot of people for very good reason want a mass movement around climate so badly but it just doesn't seem to be happening why why is that and what might we do about it yeah there's there was a kind of growing momentum and i'm sort of using that term intentionally because sunrise uh explicitly adopted what's called like momentum style uh organizing um but anyway there was growing momentum in, in both senses of the word around climate politics around anti-fossil fuel action uh around the green new deal as this alternative political economy in the years leading up to the pandemic uh, and those articulated as well with bernie's campaign and bernie having the most kind of ambitious climate policy they um articulated also to some degree with with dsa's um uh, green new deal work which i was also very involved in with the pandemic, you know, in general, and with the a very important exception of the George Floyd uprising, which we talked about last time, as well as as labor militancy, which we'll we'll talk about more in a moment. You know, in general, we saw like a sort of demobilization on a variety of fronts during the the first couple of years of the pandemic, and I, I think that the uh, climate and environmental movement was was no exception to that. I think in the past year, we've seen a sort of resumption of climate action in terms of, and what I mean by that just narrowly is like anti-fossil fuel, uh, also environmental justice, uh, local movements that are contesting, you know, environmentally destructive and climate destructive projects. I'm not sure, and this is where I want to sort of ask Amna to see if she's tracking this. I'm not sure that we've really gotten to the pre-pandemic point, especially also in terms of youth involvement and all of that. And so that brings me to Sunrise, and I, and as someone not involved in Sunrise, because as one Sunrise person told me several years ago, I'm a quote movement elder. This was like <laughs> when I was like 33 or four. I don't know. I no one had ever called me an elder. I was like 
taken aback by it. I wasn't sure what to do with it. Anyway, point being, I was never young enough to be in Sunrise <laughs> in, in Sun, you know, as, you know, in, in the sense of as Sunrise has, has existed. Um, so I've never been in Sunrise, so I'm not speaking from someone internal to the movement whatsoever, but I think it's relatively clear and I draw on folks like, you know, William Lawrence and other who have, have involved in founding Sunrise and I've written excellent pieces on the sort of arc of Sunrise. Um, it's very clear that Sunrise is not what it was a few years ago. And I think that there are different reasons for that. It has to do with relatively strict generational parameters around who gets to participate in Sunrise, right? And the kind of centering of young people in uh, very explicitly uh, as a youth movement. And I think that there are some obvious pros and cons of that. But, you know, one downside is that your best leaders kind of age out of it. And then in, there's interruption of kind of institutional memory there and, and organizational memory. And I'm not trying to say that younger people can't be also great leaders. I'm just saying that folks that have been on the ground and participated in trainings and been in specific struggles at a certain point are going to become 30 or 35 or whatever it is. And then they're no longer in sunrise, right? And so that that I think kind of creates the seeds of its own undoing in certain ways. But 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 that's just one piece. I think in addition, there's the general dynamic that we've talked about a lot, so I won't rehearse here, of like Bernie's loss and what do you do next? And in that moment of Bernie's loss, I think my understanding is that a bit of a divide occurred between some of the most you know, active local hubs, I think they're called, and then the sort of national leaders, where the national leaders got pretty involved in kind of high-level politics, trying to influence Biden's campaign and influence Biden's um, policies when he was inaugurated and some of those unity commissions or committees or whatever they were called. So anyway, there was this kind of access politics at the national level, but very disconnected from like local hubs, which I think had still kind of uh, more radical ideas about what Sunrise's politics might look like. And then maybe a third piece is just like the limits of of momentum style organizing, which I referred to earlier, which I will not pretend to be an expert on, but does involve very explicitly nonviolent civil disobedience and also a kind of sense that by kind of recurrently protesting in a nonviolent and civil way around a certain issue, in this case climate, you will like morally persuade a broader majority to adopt your views and you will shift the Overton window and you will kind of politicize, you know, previously, un you know, not politicized areas of, of, of policymaking, in this case, again, climate. So I think that had some success. I think it's to the point where, you know, the median Democrat voter is like more aware of climate, is like more aligned with something like we could call like loosely a Green New Deal. And that is to Sunrises and other movements credit. Um, but I think that that reached its limits in, in, in part exactly because of what we were talking about earlier. And Gabe, I think, hit on a lot, which is that the limits of the base of Sunrise, right? Like if DSA has a base that we could define in sociological terms that is like whiter and maybe more educated than like the, the median Democratic voter might be. Sunrise, too, has like obvious sociological limits and like was not itself going to generate a multiracial, broader like working class kind of movement. And so I think that that all of that has come to a head in various ways. And Sunrise, in my view, though, I'm I would love to be wrong about this, actually, has sort of reached its sort of political peak and is now in a in a situation again to use Gabe and on this terms from earlier of like slight disorientation or disorganization and is maybe regrouping and that would be great but you know I don't think we've seen the fruits of that I think there's been a broader shift 
which is the shift in terrain, right? So we've been talking a lot about terrain and landscape and conjuncture throughout these episodes. And, um, you know, that it's clear that the terrain of climate politics has shifted to this realm of kind of public policy and, and investment. So when previously climate politics, especially at the grassroots level, meant contesting, you know, environmentally and climate destructive projects, whether a power plant or, you know, or a pipeline, I think now it primarily seems to refer to climate politics, I mean, shaping the terms of of state intervention and state investment and private investment as well in like green technologies and in the renewable energy sector and that sort of thing. And I think as much as I think that shift in a way is welcome, like I I think that um, it's very important for the left to engage on those terrains. I also think there's a problem there, which is that we are continuing to explore and extract for fossil fuels and also use them. And like we cannot have a climate politics worth its name that only focuses on the sort of positive end of like investing in renewables and and sort of gives up on like with a lot of militancy contesting pipelines and power plants and all those things that continue to be built. Movements are still contesting those things, and I'm not trying to erase them, but it's just clear that, again, the center of gravity has moved towards, like, engaging with how do we implement and improve on the IRA, rather than, like, how do we make sure that X pipeline is not built, right? And so, you know, better articulating those, I think, would be a positive. And the fact that the terrain has kind of shifted to investment, again, should not, you know, while I think there's a major downside of losing focus on keep it in the ground in terms of oil and gas and coal— there is a positive way to view this for the left, which is that the left already has a green investment platform, which is the Green New Deal, right? And the left arguably has been thinking in terms of public investment and how to reshape the power sector and how to, you know, decarbonize transportation through this very equitable and very holistic kind of platform for for years now. And I think we should not give up on that, continue to see the Green New Deal, whatever we want to call it. I'm really not attached to specific terms, but continue to see it as relevant and and to think more concretely now that like liberals are also saying we need to invest like what is different about the left's green industrial program or policies versus liberals and how do we build a working class coalition that pushes the edges of what's possible in terms of green investment and there i would say that something that personally gives me a little bit of hope despite all of the sort of more uh maybe n- negative things i've been saying about where the climate movement is at right now is the emergent and nascent but still happening climate labor alliance vis-a-vis the UAW, which we'll talk about more maybe in a moment, and like climate allies really stepping up to support the UAW's militant direction and potential strikes. And that climate labor alliances that are not new, that folks have been working on for literally decades. We all know that like, you know, there's a long history of of climate and labor and environmental labor coalition building, but it it needs, needs to breathe new life in it in this exact moment. And I think it's very uh, it's great and 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 hopeful that those those relationships are being um, built or, or rebuilt, as the case may be. Okay, yeah. Let me start with sunrise and then move from that. Some years ago, I think it was in No Shortcuts, Jane McAlevey put out this kind of tripartite scheme for different ways of approaching political work, right? Where she talked about advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing with advocacy kind of, advocacy essentially being like the classic kind of like liberal elite theory of change where 
you know, you kind of advocate with other relatively late pl- players in the hopes that you're going to influence them when win them out on the terrain of ideas and then influence the shape of policy or whatever else it is. And then adv- and then mobilizing, um, she talked about as kind of um, continually kind of calling out the same group of people again and again, um, maybe growing to some extent, um, but not really building a mass base and kind of mobilizing those folks again and again in order to kind of try to effectuate change. So that broadens the base to some extent um, and kind of uh, diversifies the tactics to some extent as well, but doesn't focus as much on organizing and base building. And then finally, she talked about organizing where you are trying to build a larger and larger social base in order to not just change the face of law and policy, but obviously to change who governs, to put it maybe a little bit too simply. And so I think one of the things with um, Sunrise and all of the kind of momentum-based organizations, of which there are many, and they've done incredible work, is that they've, they're pretty, they have mobilized and moved a whole generation of people in, I think, really important ways. And so I don't mean to suggest that, um, you know, they've just kind of recycled the same group of people or the same kind of strategies and tactics, but they have kind of stayed in some real ways in a mobilizing um, kind of framework. Maybe not for lack of trying. I don't know. I've never been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not inside Sunrise in any way, um, though I have talked to a bunch of Momentum people, including in Ohio, over the years. Um, And so I think one of the limits of that is in order to take on the question of climate policy or fossil fuel capital, obviously we need an extraordinary um, social base in order to do that. And so part of what we see, I think, with Sunrise um, and the Green New Deal and its influence on, uh, for example, the IRA is kind of a version of what we were talking about when we were talking generally about non-reformist reforms, which is that the Sunrise Movement and its work with AOC and Markey and all of the work that, you know, Eco-Socialist Committee and DSA and others have done to agitate around the Green New Deal using a range of strategies and tactics have had an influence on how we think about and talk about climate and the, the new centrality of the question of climate on law and policy. And yet, you know, once you get the IRA and maybe even before that with Biden's election, there's not enough kind of durable organization to kind of sustain beyond that moment and figure out what to do next. Because of course, we have to keep pushing. Um, The Green New Deal in itself was kind of just a pivot point, not kind of the end game by any means. And we're not even close to that. So the second thing is, I think this question of who is the climate left is actually really important. And I think one of my takeaways from our conversation, both last time and this time, is that across the left, we're just in a moment of deep uh, you know, disorientation, maybe to take Gabe's word, but also kind of recomposition with the organizational formations, particular ones waning or reconstituting themselves, and hopefully some new ones um, emerging. One of the things that I think is really extraordinary about the DSA that makes it quite different from pretty much, I think, any other left or left liberal formation in the country, um, and this is based on me trying to kind of study and organize these things, is the extent to which you can find out a lot about the DSA by going on the internet and reading not just Jacobin, but like the many online periodicals and the newsletters and so on and so forth, where 
um, members of different chapters and committees, et cetera, across the country are debating the kind of decisions, the policies and the, dis- and, and the kind of different moves of DSA chapters and DSA national. And that gives you a kind of insight. And I think in a way that's really important to, and a kind of, you know, democratic nature to the organization that lends itself to a different kind of politic. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think it's actually pretty hard to understand what is happening with Sunrise Movement, just like it's pretty hard to understand in a lot of ways what's happened with a lot of organizations, particularly in a nonprofit form, but more broadly, because there's just not a lot of transparency. You know, you can get you can obviously understand, you know, to the extent that they're putting up materials or making videos, um, waging public campaigns and so on and so forth. But, for example, it's hard to understand, like, I don't know how many. Um, members or people have has Sunrise ever actually, you know, been a part of it. You can kind of get numbers on the number of chapters. You could try to count the number of actions. But what the life of the organization is, and this is true for a whole range of like kind of organizations in the progressive left spectrum, it's hard to tell. Um, and so what's going on with Sunrise in that sense is hard. But a question of who is the climate left seems extraordinarily important. I think one of the things that we're learning is, as we know, like many of the big crises that face us, whether it's climate, the question of democracy, the future of the Supreme Court, all these big abstract questions which we could talk on about hours and for hours and hours, in order for it to move people in the way that we need people to move in order to make a change requires not just organizing, but tying like these big abstract things to particular places and questions and kind of um, things that people are dealing with every day. And so in that sense, I think one of the ways to kind of rethink or reformulate the climate left is in fact to move beyond kind of thinking about Sunrise or even um, DSA eco-socialists to look at, for example, the struggle against Cop City in Atlanta, the different campaigns against the pipelines, which I know, Thea, you um, talked about, or even kind of what seemed to me, and I don't know a lot about them, but kind of the growing campaigns um, against tourism in, for example, Hawaii and Puerto Rico um, and other of the U.S. territories, which are very much, you know, like the anti-pipeline campaigns, uh, or some of the anti-pipeline campaigns rooted in an indigenous anti-colonial politic, but are also raising fundamental questions about the environment and the climate and to whom the state is responsible and the kind of the route forward, how we respond to and relate to one another um, and the planet itself. And I think we have to kind of think about those as very central to where the climate left is now, because that is where, um, uh, you know, these big abstract questions are meeting people in their everyday lives and creating emergencies that we have to respond to and that people have to respond to because they're literally living through their homes being decimated by fire. You know, in terms of, it seems to me that in terms of either our capacity to kind of go beyond the politics of investment and negation of further development of fossil fuel extraction and use, or our capacity to, you know, transition to a more ecologically viable way of living uh, that doesn't just kind of green our current practice, you know, just doesn't just swap out, you know, petroleum-based internal combustion for, you know, electric vehicles, although that's good to do some, right, but like a more qualitative shift, Obviously, those are limits that we have not yet figured out how to surmount. And we are all kind of hoping that some of the kind of contradictory victories of the last uh, couple of years might help us to cohere 
a social constituency to surmount, in particular by helping in the process of composition of a working class environmental politics. Uh, and it's that constituency that will enable, presumably or hopefully, uh, kind of more aggressive moves in both of those directions. But, you know, that then kind of raises the question that we've been going to through this whole conversation, which is like, does a kind of contradictory, liberal-led, somewhat left-influenced, but also subject to various other influences, kind of policy program open up such possibilities? I do think it's important to see contradictions as opportunities, not just problems. Folks may have seen circulating the quite funny quote, uh, I can't remember where in the country it was from, of some guy whose like, small business is prospering because of a Biden investment, in, you know, an IRA investment in his town. And the reporter's like, do you like this investment? And he's like, yeah, it's great. My business is doing way better. My whole life has changed. And then the reporter's like, you know, it comes from Biden. And he's like, oh, then I don't like it. I think it's bad. And, you know, I get why people are making fun of that. And, you know, fair enough in some ways. But that's an opportunity, right? Um, to the extent that we can bring about that kind of contradiction, we're going to have to be in that contradiction for a long, long time, I think, before we kind of resolve it our way. And people are going to get frustrated with it, understandably. But I think it's important to see contradiction as a tool and not just a problem. We've talked a lot about the the left and liberalism and we should definitely talk about conservatism and the right as well. Generally speaking, it seems clear that the reactionary and authoritarian politics that were, you know, a normal part of the so-called normal pre-Trump right, that they only continue to dramatically intensify in new and sometimes very strange ways over the years. But one thing that seems different, for sure, is that immediately after 2016, everyone across this political spectrum spent a lot of time debating and analyzing what was going on on the right, specifically with Trump and Trumpism. But then it seems like people mostly stopped asking a lot of those questions in recent years, even as the right continues to contest for power, continues to grow more authoritarian and reactionary, and among many constituencies, particularly certain working class constituencies and not just white working class constituencies, continues to grow. What do you think makes the right that has formed since Trump's election and then since his 2020 defeat different from the right that brought Trump to power in 2016? Or alternately, do you think that its basic form or forms were set then and that all the changes we've seen in recent years, all the new and scary and weird seeming things, that they're more a continuation or evolution from, from those basic patterns? I don't know the answer to that for sure. You know, I'll, I'll say this. I think that something has really struck me about seeming ongoing process of radicalization on the right. That process has very serious and powerful material determinants. And I think what the right has been discovering, and if you, you can think about this in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, is that, in fact, to attempt to confront the social transformations that are produced by capitalism itself is going to require more and more revolutionary posture. And that revolutionary posture is in some degree in contradiction with capital, you know, kind of ruling class elements of the right uh, or divides ruling class elements of the right in terms of how to relate to it and produces the kind of like churning dynamic that is Trumpism or, you know, what, you, what I would call a kind of neo or proto-fascist phenomenon on the right. But I think that it's important to see the right and the radical right as an attempt to actually 
contest a real set of social changes, even if those social changes are not championed by many mainstream actors in American politics. I think that they are nonetheless real and that the politics over the freedom of trans people, the question of freedom from police violence and, uh, you know, exposure to policing and imprisonment, you know, that, that Black Lives Matter and George Floyd uprising were about, that those, those phenomena uh, are real sites of political struggle and not kind of merely cultural in some way. And it, part of how we can tell that is by observing the right's reaction to them and the right's behavior around them. Yeah, I think it's so critical to emphasize how much the right is radicalized along the lines of American state repressive institutions around policing, around the border patrol. There was a really interesting story in the New York Times recently on polling that that showed that DeSantis's anti-woke crusade, all of the Disney shit, was far less important to the right than the primordial Trumpian security themes. There's been a lot of discussion recently around the question of class dealignment, the the breakdown of class-based patterns of voting, particularly for the Democratic Party. This has been especially severe, or the documentation tends to focus on the case of white voters without a college degree, which is often discussed in the media as white working class voters, even though, of course, education is a poor index for class itself, but the data I think is still meaningful in some way. I think the question is, in what sense is it meaningful? And it does show that it's not just whites without a college degree moving towards Republicans, but also very much black, Latino, and Asian voters, too. What's your take on this phenomenon and the debate over the phenomenon in terms of educational and or class dealignment that seems to be underway, particularly in terms of What's going on with the Democratic Party increasingly losing these voters? And what is it about the Republican Party that is so successfully appealing to them? So as an initial matter, my take is that I'm very worried about this. I think there's something about basically the prevailing forms of economic and social arrangements and the lack of social institutions outside of religious institutions, essentially, and maybe the family and maybe to some extent schools, um, although that's a whole other conversation uh, within communities of color in particular that make right wing politics of various sorts um, very ripe and easy to take. And so you can think back to um, that Mike Davis essay I talked about in the last episode and you left for viewer. One of the things he talked about in terms of thinking about the drift of Latino voters in uh, Texas and along the border toward uh, Trump and the Republican Party, a part of that story is the story of border patrol jobs and um, the kind of central role, not just of policing prisons and military and all the jobs that they require, but they're generally the fact that they come with better wages and better benefits and all that kind of stuff um, without a lot of real alternatives, not to mention many times, um, from what I understand more from interpersonal conversations, um, efforts by these agencies to really, um, you know, recruit black and brown candidates of various sorts. You know, when, when Trump was president, one of his signature policies was the Muslim ban. And so part of what that did, for example, in Muslim communities, which are, you know, black and brown immigrant and non-immigrant, was to kind of 
create a fundamental tension for Muslim communities in signing up for the Republican Party because it's one of its flagship agendas at that time was to be to was to exclude Muslims from the country. And so that created a kind of contradiction that made that kind of created a blockage in that drift. But now that the the right wing has kind of moved off explicitly the policy of the Muslim ban, although obviously like, you know, anti-Muslim sentiment is is a broader and deeper phenomenon. And it's focused more now on anti-LGBT politics, all the legislation, uh, you know, anti-trans legislation, the anti-drag shows and that sort of thing. One of the things I'm hearing from uh, friends and people across the country is in places where there are um, Muslim constituencies that create any kind of um, sizable voting bloc, uh, Republican and right-wing uh, organizers basically are moving in in different ways to sign up and mobilize those communities to sign up for a more explicitly anti-LGBT politic. You know, it's it's not just with Muslim communities. It's a broader phenomenon because of just, the, in some sense, the open playing field of the social and all the gaps that it leaves um, since we don't have many social institutions in which people are acculturated in any kind of different, you know, kind of politic. Although I wouldn't use the language of class dealignment and uh, would have a kind of critique of the way that that argument is developed, the phenomenon that it describes is real. I think that the increasing leftward drift of the middle class means more than one thing at a single time, right? It means both, you know, kind of like upper middle class suburbanite resistance libs and college students working at Starbucks to try to, you know, get their degree and forming a union. And both of those are kind of elements of that. So I, I think we should be somewhat careful with it. And I don't think most of the people who make the class dealignment argument would say this. It certainly does not mean the Republicans are becoming a working class party, right? Uh, which is important to, to underscore. As Amna is saying, I think the radicalization of the right allows for these kind of both these inroads by the Republican Party in general, and then also these very weird and perverse phenomena like, you know, non-white participation in neo-Nazi politics, for example, right? Which is something that we had these kind of prominent anecdotal cases of in the last few years, and, you know, similarly, like, trad wife type phenomenon, right? Women's participation in, like, ultra-misogynistic politics and so on. The way that the Democratic Party or liberalism have kind of exposed themselves to this kind of undermining uh, certainly expands the, the kind of field of opportunity for that kind of thing. And then there are kind of ideological entrepreneurs, you know, people essentially like an Andrew Tate or who, I mean, he's less expressly political, but people sort of like that who then figure out you know, in their community, in their neighborhood, on their YouTube channel, whatever it might be, how to kind of um, take some advantage of that. It sounds like it sounds like the argument you're making is that is that the class or educational dealignment phenomenon is important, but it doesn't tell the whole picture of what's going on with class formation in the United States. What then is that big picture and how is and how might the organized left relate to it? Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, there's the ways that like socioeconomic processes are kind of bringing new groups of people together around relations of production, are creating new sites of conflict in those relations, right? And then there's the kind of political meaning articulated out of those relations and uh, out of those processes. And one doesn't flow automatically into the other. It's helpful to look at it in kind of some historical perspective, right? There is the kind of smashed fragments of the old industrial working class, which are kind of scattered across the landscape and, you know, still have real pockets of organization and real pockets of militancy and possibility, right? And we see that really clearly, for example, with the Teamsters and the UAW, but are also a shadow of their former selves in terms of membership, in terms of power, 
um, and in terms of their ability to kind of anchor a larger working class progressive politics around them, right, in the way that they once did. There is the kind of thing I already alluded to, what I think of as the kind of like downwardly mobile, you know, or bottom half of the PMC or whatever, uh, which has been a major site of militancy in the last 10 years, but has, you know, faces real kind of uh, limits in its ability to certainly kind of inflict real pain on capital due to the kinds of industries where it's employed. And I think also to kind of reach beyond itself socially, right? That's been a real challenge. What does it mean when graduate student workers go on strike for the larger working class? Can they lead that in some way? And then I think there's the, what I would think of as the kind of broader service sector working class, which includes uh, some quite unionized and militant pockets, like in, in particular in the public sector, um, but also, you know, nurses and workers like that, uh, but then ranges down to a kind of much more uh, precarious, you know, strata. So like if you think about a nurse, but also like a nurse, like a CNA, a nursing assistant or a home health aide, um, right? That's a, that's a pretty broad range in terms of income, social power, unionization between those people. Because I think we are still in the process of figuring out and articulating the points of connection between these fragments and how to articulate those points of connection, not just organizationally, although we've made some progress and here think about the alliance of the grad students and the auto workers and the movement for democracy in the UAW, right? Without both sides of that alliance, Sean Fain would not be president of the UAW. It's not like grad students took over the union in the annoying way that like Matt Iglesias says, but I don't think Sean Fain would be president without them either. So, you know, we're articulating the connection in that sense, right? Like building the organizational kind of um, musculature that links these different fragments, also articulating it at the level of ideology. And I think this is really important. Like, I don't think we exactly have our version of what like in 1920 people would have said like industrial democracy or something like that, right? There were kind of common sense ideas, ideological kind of, um, you know, signifiers, symbols, images, songs, fragments of culture of different kinds, right? That in some way kind of meant the unity of the different layers of the working class that would eventually make the New Deal. Uh, and I don't think we really have those yet. Although I think, you know, we probably have made some progress in trying to kind of feel our way toward them. Um, and I think that's a really important kind of level to think about also. One other thing to add and to maybe circle back to our discussion of industrial policy and Bidenomics, which is like what will be the role or impact of the partly revitalized and unevenly but definitely more militant, you know, labor movement and Bidenomics, like this new kind of, you know, industrial policy paradigm that that is supposedly being being implemented. And I'm drawing on the work of, of reporters that have been covering this, but it's it's in these kind of new sectors of semiconductors, solar, batteries, electric vehicles that we see like maybe some of the biggest kind of gaps between what Bidenomics professes and the reality on the ground. In a variety of these sectors that industrial policy is intentionally stimulating and successfully so, meaning that through state intervention, we have like lots of new investment in all of these areas, but we have it in ways that are really undermining the position of labor and the dignity of labor. And so, you know, while sure, there are some clauses of the IRA or some uses of the administrative state that favor labor and have been important in, uh, in the fact that some of these plants or facilities are being unionized, and I don't want to downplay that, and there's the incredible victory in Georgia um, as a result of, of, of some of that. But at the same time, we see in the latest reporting, the vast majority in an extremely lopsided way of new investment that is flooding into these sectors, the semiconductor, solar, batteries, and EVs, 
uh, and 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 wind as well is in red states, and it's not it's not the redness or the partisanship that's important. It's the fact that they are right to work states with laws that are very hostile to unionization. So like all of this money being unleashed by the IRA, you know, if we look at the sort of geographic composition, is flooding into places where it's going to be a real uphill battle for workers to unionize, right? And so the very already tense sort of contract negotiations that the UAW is about to enter into with the big three and the potential for a strike, I think could be really dispositive in this regard. Like, is it is there going to be a moment where labor can really assert its authority and kind of reshape a bit whether this industrial policy is just like a gift to capital uh, and indirectly to the climate um, or is like something that is going to empower working class people and make their lives better in some way. And so, you know, I think we should all be watching those struggles and, and similar fights might happen in some of these other sectors as well. This has been a discussion about the American conjuncture. And if you're listening to this from elsewhere in the world, outside the U.S., the main reason you care about this discussion, I, I suspect, is because the capitalist world system is, in many senses, an American-led imperial formation. And the facet of Bidenomics that's most opposed by the left, and for very good reason, is its geopolitics, specifically the measures designed to block China's economic and technological development, and that seem to have the U.S. and China on a dangerous glide path towards increasing conflict. And in some respects, it's arguably... It's arguably that hawkish geopolitical dimension that is the decisive force driving the whole policy project of Bidenomics. But as is often the case with, with issues of international politics and, and American power abroad, both the new Cold War with China and the ongoing war in Ukraine seem to point to a major failing or weakness of the American left, our utter inability to influence U.S. foreign policy or more generally the U.S. role in governing the world system, and our inability really to even meaningfully organize people in any way around international politics or or to build cross-border networks that can really wield real power. And one explanation of this could be, oh, well, you know, there was really only a strong U.S. anti-war movement when U.S. lives were on the line because of the draft in Vietnam. But look to the 1980s, and the most consequential American social movements of that decade amongst them were the Solidarity Movement opposing Reagan's dirty wars in Central America and the Nuclear Freeze Movement. So this isn't to say that the sort of people listening to this podcast don't care about the rest of the world or that most leftists and socialists aren't internationalists, because I think listeners to this podcast, members of DSA, whoever, are internationalists. But... We don't have any meaningful power organization here. It feels like geopolitics is just something that that's happening to us at a time when when the world order is on an increasingly frightening trajectory, a trajectory that will is and will be very consequential for everything we've been discussing and more. So my question is, how is this emergent geopolitics happening to us? How is it shaping the present terrain of struggle in the U.S.? And then what might make it possible for us to play some role in shaping those geopolitics so that they can point us away away from conflict and towards, say, climate cooperation? Is there anywhere where we can see the outlines of a new popular internationalism taking shape in the United States? 
I've heard people argue that we should be looking to immigrant rights politics as an entry point. And that might have been a promising place to look under Trump. But immigration, briefly a major issue for anti-Trump liberals and leftists, seems to have collapsed as a salient political category almost everywhere but the nativist right, which is as obsessed with anti-immigrant politics as ever. It does seem to me like immigrant rights, immigrants' rights politics actually is a very ripe area for the left wing to put pressure on liberals and actually make some real gains in the direction we've been talking about across these two episodes for the reason that the economy is suffering from what seems to be a quite durable labor shortage. And there is a kind of organic logic to a much more open immigration system, which as people on the left, we should want out of you know internationalist solidarity and would be a potent response to years of horrifying xenophobia and which liberals, I think, should be able to recognize the kind of logic of but are scared politically around. And this, I have to say, I think, and Dan, you've written about this, obviously, is a real site of political malpractice where liberals and even the left just let the right set the terms of the debate. I mean, I saw a poll the other day where like, like 80% of Americans, a huge number of Americans say immigration is a good thing for our country. Uh, And I understand it's more complicated than that when you get less abstract than that. But nevertheless, there's like no real powerful sustained voice for letting people in the country uh, in the way that like people want to come here, you know, to work and participate in our society and like make a contribution. And, you know, that like, I think there is a really untapped politics for that. Um, And it would be exactly one of these sites where I think where the left could kind of impose a better settlement on liberals. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that we have not seen liberals be more cowardly and more deferential to Republican framing on immigration. This is like the worst that we've seen in a very long time, which is not what you would have suspected from, say, the Democratic presidential primary debates in 2020 when you had like everyone on stage pretty much articulating positions significantly to the left of the Obama administration on immigration. One of the many kind of forms that abolitionist organizing has taken that we haven't kind of named in the course of the many hours we've been talking, uh, you know, not there's like the organizing against many arms of the carceral state beyond just prisons and police in a narrow sense, including detention and deportation, obviously child protective services. And all of those questions, I think, are, you know, deeply embedded with questions of how the economy is organized, but also, you know, in particular with um, immigration detention and deportation could be more tied to broader questions of internationalism, the global order, and the role of the United States within. Um, I think the international question more, internationalism question more broadly is hugely important. And I feel in some ways, you know, like it's hard to know where and how to push it. But even when those questions of US empire were more front and center in the news and even in our movements, like for example, you know, when there was organizing against the US war in Iraq or against Iraqi sanctions, there were some huge demonstrations, but on the one hand, it's hard to see kind of where that is now. Um, And on the other hand, it was hard to see any impact. And I think that all of those things can be demobilizing. On the other hand, I do think there's a growing awareness, as you were kind of saying, Dan, of like U.S. empire, militarism, and capitalism. One of the things I found kind of um, fun um, is that I felt like on my social media feed, 
this year on July 4th, I saw more kind of uh, skepticism and anti-U.S. sentiment than I ever have, um, for whatever that's worth. And so that kind of suggested a deeper questioning. I think one thing that seems extraordinarily important to this conversation and that's changed in the course of my life and is significant, I think, for the composition of the U.S. left is the way that the question of Israel and Palestine has changed substantially um, in, in all sorts of ways, in how it lives and uh, animates uh, debates on the left and the kinds of um, the willingness among broader segments of the left in the United States to take action in solidarity with the Palestinian people um, or against the Israeli state. And so in 2021, the spring after the George Floyd rebellions, the protests in solidarity with the people of Sheikh Jarrah who were being evicted in various ways um, from their homes. You know, those protests were all over the country. I mean, I, I remember I, there were ma- there was a pretty massive protest even in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, and I'd never seen any protest really uh, other than something very small that had anything to do with um, much going outside of the United States. And I think uh, years of work by boycott, uh, divest, and sanctions, BDS activists and organizers, organizing by Jews and Palestinians in the United States um, and in solidarity with people in Israel and Palestine has been really important. And then, of course, there's been some important connections between Black-led organizing in the United States and, uh, you know, in solidarity with the Palestinian people. So going back to the electoral question, I mean, in New York, um, Zoran Mamdani, who is a DSA member of the New York State Legislature, just introduced this Not In Our Dime Act, um, which is to kind of um, stop uh, nonprofit sending money to um, settle and displace um, in Israel Palestine. So I think there's lots of connections to be made. I think one of the things that's really difficult um, is the question of kind of who to align with and how to build relationships across borders. Um, I think sometimes we don't know in our own cities who to do that with. So to try to figure out how to do it in another country, I think is incredibly hard. Um, just to kind of bring it back to the question of capital in some sense. Sometime in the last month, the CEO of Palantir, which is that data uh, analysis and hoarding company, uh, wrote an op-ed in the Times about saying we shouldn't be against AI and we should be for regulating it. And he had this long section in the middle where he was citing and then rebuking the various form of worker protest at Google, Microsoft, and other companies in Silicon Valley um, where the workers were refusing to work on projects where the companies were doing things for the U.S. Army and the Department of Defense. Um, And I found that op-ed is worth reading and really scary, but I found it remarkable that he devoted so much space to that worker protest of the relationship between these companies and U.S. military abroad, that it, it kind of moved him enough or disturbed him enough that it took up so much space in the op-ed, suggested that there is there is concern within, for example, Silicon Valley about people not wanting um, uh, to have the kind of supportive relationship with the U.S. military and the work that it does around the world in a way that feels new. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, this almost feels like the start of a uh, whole other set of conversations and and terrains. And one of the disorienting aspects of internationalism is, you know, the the world is big, it's complex. I think American hegemony is in some ways strong as ever, if we think about it in military terms or in terms of dollar hegemony and the, you know, power of the economic power of the U.S. But in other ways is obviously being very contested and, and there is 
there is a sense in which the world is multipolar, even as the U.S. maintains uh, two, at least two clear forms of hegemony. And that itself is a confusing picture, right? I think that it is in some ways simpler to be an anti-imperialist when, like, U.S. power feels, like, very uncontested. In a world in which there are other powers, then we have to start thinking, well, what do we think of these other powers? Do we align with these other powers because, like, enemy of enemy is my friend? Or do we think that that's a very vulgar form of anti-imperialism and sort of faces the fact that in those societies there are worker revolts and left forces that are being repressed by those governments, right? I mean, that's, like, just a very obvious place where I think there's often dissensus on the left, is how how to orient to the enemies of the U.S., especially in a moment where those enemies or opponents of U.S. power have some now significant, at least sort of sub-imperial power of their own. And then maybe a little more granularly, even in contexts where there are leftist governments, uh, you know, I think in, in, in Latin America, for example, there's all forms of complexity there too. Like, are we are we meant to be in solidarity with a government? Should we be in solidarity with with the movements or bases of that, that government? What about when there's disagreement between those? Should we just stay out? These are debates that have been circulating around the U.S. left for, for decades, and they're not new. But I do think that the sort of polycrisis slash multipolarity of the world kind of makes them a bit more challenging. Um, Just to maybe close out on a slightly more hopeful note, I do think that uh, it is interesting and quite important that AOC is currently leading a congressional delegation to Latin America and that she's specifically chosen places where the left is in power and where there are also very vibrant left social movements that both support and sometimes contest and critique those governments. And specifically, she's in Brazil and and going then to Chile and and Colombia. And she's had a unabashedly anti-imperial framing to the whole visit, which I don't see as her unique genius, but rather to go off of Amna's point, reflecting like perhaps more more and more anti-imperial or, or at least kind of um, critique of U.S. hegemony that, that the U.S. left is sort of comfortable with and, and is, is articulating in, in recent years. There's, of course, a long tradition of that, but I do see like a resurgence of it. Um, and so I think AOC is reflecting the fact that like her leftist constituents are, are comfortable with speaking in anti-imperial terms. And, you know, I also think it's it's just great that uh, elected officials that are leftists in the U.S. that can maybe forge like the outlines of what a different foreign policy would look like, right? And and that is the very beginnings of a process, but it also is important that over the past few years, I think that DSA has had a number of delegations to Latin American kind of movement conventions, right? And that feels relevant here too. And that DSA is beginning to forge pretty direct links with movements and socialist parties in Latin America, to me at least feels reflected in the fact that, you know, a socialist member of U.S. Congress is, is now visiting these places and, and, um, and creating more direct linkages with those, with those leaders. But I think that overall, it's a place of tremendous weakness for the left, uh, with the very important exceptions of, of the movement uh, for Palestinian rights and, and BDS. Overall, I think we're still really finding our footing in a world that is fast-changing and pretty scary. Well, Amna Akbar, Gabe Wynett, and Theoria Frankos, thank you all very, very much, most of all for, for your endurance. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm fading a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Dan. <laughs> thanks, Dan.
That was the second of my two-part interview with Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Thea Rio Francos. Amna Akbar is a professor of law at The Ohio State University. She writes about social movements on the left, their demands and campaigns, and how they relate to questions in institutions of law. Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, was published in 2021 and discussed with me right here on The Dig. Theo Rio Francos is a professor of political science at Providence College who researches resource extraction, the energy transition, supply chains, and social movements. She's the author of Resource Radicals, the co-author of A Planet to Win, and currently writing Extraction, the Frontiers of Green Capitalism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, accidents themselves fall naturally into the general course of development and are compensated again by other accidents, but acceleration and delay are very dependent upon such accidents. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or another such platform, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And someone, please tell me how to get Spotify to stop making it impossible to find The Dig on Spotify. Or if you're at Spotify, please fix it. If you know someone at Spotify, please contact them. It is impossible to find The Dig on Spotify. This is very frustrating. Anyhow, last but not least, do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. (laughs) 